2: Martyrs and Missionaries is a production of Revive Studios. You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and every episode I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're covering the kumai Rouge through the eyes of a Korean taekwondo instructor turned orphan rescuer, Jimmy Rim. I want to begin this episode by thanking all of you who have recently joined the show and started listening. I've actually received a lot of emails and a lot of Instagram and Facebook messages from you guys saying how much you enjoy the show. And that is always a huge encouragement. So thank you so much for that. I am really appreciative. I also want to give a huge shout out and thanks to Mike, Corey, and Brian who recently joined us on Patreon. I also want to thank Philip and Neil as they recently upped their support. We couldn't do it without you guys. So thank you very much. A little something about the story that we're going to cover today. I found this entirely by accident. I was browsing through the library here at the school, and I stumbled across something called With Christ in the Killing Fields. And it wasn't very long, maybe about 150 pages or so. So I looked at it, and I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like it has kind of a little bit of a macabre art form to it, like on the front cover. Um, so I started flipping through it. And it was really interesting. Like it was very different because it was written uh, as a kind of by a missionary publisher, if I'm not mistaken, about this guy's life and then his current ministry and things like that. And I thought this is really um, unique. And it kind of shows a different perspective and kind of an inside perspective from a Christian, which is really rare um, in the Cambodian genocide because everybody left or was kicked out or was murdered. So this is a very uh, rare insight into what was happening on the ground here the kumai rouge or the cambodian genocide only lasted for four years from 1975 until 1979 but in the course of its four short years it killed two million people uh, one-fifth of the population at the time I'll give you a quick backstory just to kind of give you a context of what's going on, kind of how it comes to be, all those things. Now, you may recognize the name Pol Pot. He is the kind of the mastermind behind the Cambodian genocide, although he is not solely responsible for it. Uh, There's always people that help in these sort of things. Pol Pot was a middle class, upper class kind of guy, and his parents sent him to a school in Phnom Penh. This is about the 1930s, 1940s, I believe, and Cambodia is still under the influence of France. If you know anything about French Indochina, you'll know that they controlled the countries of Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam for the better part of about, I want to say about a hundred years? I think so. <laughs> anyway, so they controlled this area, and so a lot of the um, schools and education centers and things like that, a lot of the architecture is French, and Pol Pot ends up going to one of these French schools. And he actually ends up flunking out It doesn't go very well for him. He's not academically gifted. But a few years later, he gets a carpentry scholarship or an engineering scholarship to go to Paris. So he goes there. And while he is there uh, enjoying Paris, he comes in contact with the writings of Marx, Karl Marx, the father of communism. And while he doesn't quite understand Marx, Marx can be a little bit pie in the sky. He does understand Stalinism and he loves Stalinism. And so he and some other friends get together and they begin talking about liberating Cambodia from the French, which was a very popular sentiment at the time. So once he flunks out of also this college, because like I said, he's not academically gifted, he throws himself into politics and he becomes one of the leading members of the Communist Party in Cambodia, which is actually run mostly by Vietnamese, whom he does not like. And so when he gains control of the party after its leader is murdered by the Cambodian government, he decides to kick out all the people who have any kind of Vietnamese sympathy, any Vietnamese leadership, and make it Cambodia first and Cambodia only, because that was one of the main tenets of Pol Pot's goal. The idea was that it would be self-sufficient, a country that has no outside influence, a country that is uh, Cambodia only, a country that gets rid of all of its intellectuals, that means doctors, uh, teachers, lawyers, engineers, any sort of person who even appears intellectual. In fact, uh, even people, anybody with glasses was targeted as someone being an intellectual. So even if you were a farmer having a pair of glasses, you were still killed on just the appearance of being an intellectual. During the 1960s, the Kumai Rouge was really just a guerrilla force, very small, just kind of did a few little uh, attacks here and there. They weren't really anything to be worried about. And in 1970, there was a, a coup of the government. The uh, current kind of king, I guess you would say, was overthrown, and he, was, he went into exile in Beijing. Uh, now, while he's in Beijing, obviously the CCP has a very um, – an interest. An interest in the Khumai Rouge because they're both communist. So Mao convinces the ousted prime minister to support the Kumai Rouge. And in return, the Khumai Rouge will, re- will return him to his place in office. His kind of... Uh, he is the prince, technically, but he kind of abdicated for more political power. Uh, so it's kind of messy. But obviously, once the Khumai Rouge get into power, they don't keep him. So the only one surprised would be him. Uh, anyway, so... At this point, now, this, the CCP is now the power behind the Communist Party and China is now the power behind the Khmer Rouge. Before this, they're just this tiny little uh, guerrilla force group, but now they have, you know, the, a ton of money coming in from Beijing. And so they're able to get, um, more soldiers. They're able to get more advisors. They're able to get more weapons, things like that. And before long, they actually are more, uh, manned and equipped than the, uh, the other government, the Cambodian army, uh, of the Kumai Republic. And so for the next few years, you have this fighting back and forth between the Kumai Republic and the Kumai Rouge. The Kumai Republic is incredibly, uh, ill-equipped. As we'll see later on in this story, they're just not up to the task because their government is so corrupt. So on April 17th of 1975, the Khmer Rouge prevails. They come into Phnom Penh, the capital city of Cambodia, and they declare victory. People think that the war and killing is over because for the past few years they've been dealing with a civil war. So they're kind of not particularly excited, I would say, but they were just relieved the war was over. When the uh, Kumai Rouge came into the city, they were blaring on loudspeakers, hey, don't worry about it. We're all brothers. We're not going to hold anything against you. Just come register if you were a former soldier of the Kumai army. No big deal. Then they tell everyone, hey, you have to evacuate because the Americans are coming and they're going to bomb. And so you just need to leave the city just for about three days don't worry about it. You can come back to your house. Everything'll be fine. Just 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 go ahead and and move along. Just go where we tell you to go. And this is what begins the 4 years of terror. And also something very important, everyone was sent off to the farm. It didn't matter what your background was, uh, you were just automatically assigned the role of farmer. Because uh, Pol Pot believed that the last time the Kumai Empire was great was during the Angkorian period when they built Angkor Wat and things like that, and their occupation was farming. Over the course of this four years of terror, in the beginning, Cambodia had about 1,100 teachers. And in 1979, they had less than 100 The majority of their doctors had been killed as well as anyone perceived of being an intellectual. So you had no one left who knew how to run the country, who knew how to heal people, who knew how to teach people. It was a complete disaster, a complete disaster. Nightmare, honestly. The only thing they seemed interested in doing was killing people, and they had many killing fields, about 300 killing fields. The most famous is Tol Slang or uh, S21. It is in Pen on Pen. It was a converted school building uh, that was taken and turned into a torture facility and also uh, experimentation center for medical students who now had no access to Western medicine, but were encouraged to experiment On living subjects, and it resulted in a lot of horrible experimentations. Uh, For example, uh, one time there was a uh, a doctor that just ripped open a rib cage to see a beating heart and see what it looked like and what would happen. And of course, the person died immediately. There were just all sorts of uh, experiments like this just to see what would happen. What could the human body take? Out of the 12,000 people imprisoned at S21, there were only 12 survivors. The Khmer Rouge was so bad and so out of control and even began to attack their neighbors, Vietnam, began to attack some of, the, um, some of the villages across the border that the communists in Vietnam, who just a few years ago had had their own bloody overthrow of their government, put a stop to the Khmer Rouge. And so they controlled the city center and the country for the next 10 years until about 1989. And there's a whole bunch of political drama that happens up until very recently, up until about 2015, when power was consolidated under the current prime minister. And with all that information in your arsenal now, let's go ahead and dive into the story of Jimmy Rim. Jimmy Rim was a Korean national who was brought in by the Cambodian government to teach the troops how to fight. He was a trained taekwondo instructor, and he made a living teaching soldiers how to fight in hand-to-hand combat. But he wasn't really a good guy. In fact, he was actually kind of a terrible guy. He wasn't really interested in the plight of the Cambodian people or the ongoing conflict or the struggles or even the daily bombings in the capital city, Phnom Penh. Instead, he spent all of his time partying with the corrupt generals. And when he would drink, he would become, as he said, like a wild beast. And he would scream and smash anything in sight. And his behavior became so widespread and so well-known and so just awful, that the Korean embassy tried multiple times to recall him, but the Cambodian generals protected him. And if he was driving by and a member of the military did not salute him, he would step out of the car and smack them across the face. So he's a little bit rough around the edges. And his observations about the Cambodian army are something I found a little bit interesting. He says that they had outdated equipment. He says it's like watching children play. And they fought French style, which meant the whole family tagged along. So if you were fighting the Khmer Rouge... Your family would be a few miles behind you, just picnicking and waiting, basically. Uh, and what would happen then is the Cambodian army would be defeated pretty soundly uh, because they were dealing with such outdated equipment. And then the Kumai Rouge would roll over them and go right towards the wife and kids. And instead of going and fighting with their men, the soldiers would fill the bars instead. Jimmy also noticed that while practicing Taekwondo, not very long into the practice, they would faint. And he asked the officers, what's happening? Why are these men passing out? And he comes to find out that the officers are charging them for every single thing. That's food and weapons and uh, just clothing and anything they need. Also, they weren't giving them their full salary, if they were giving them their salary at all. They were basically getting shorted and forced to fight in this war with outdated equipment without food um, and without proper um, proper clothing it was it's a complete disaster towards the beginning of his story jimmy tells how he became a believer and it's i would say a rather unique story it's very interesting so i'm going to read it here as he tells it in the book normally i came home late after an evening of partying with my friends On the evening of June 24th, 1973, I came home unusually early, about 7.30. I had not even had any liquor that evening, and after dinner, I went to bed at about 10 o'clock. I fell into a very deep, very sound sleep. And around midnight, something special happened. Suddenly, the room was filled with a very bright light. There was a man dressed in a white gown who had a white pitcher of oil in his hand. He called me by name and poured the oil over my head, and it ran down my body. My body began to burn where the oil touched it. I leapt up out of bed. I searched for him, but he had disappeared, and my body was burning with fever. I began to worry. I thought about my past life and what would happen if I died. Most of the city had been destroyed by the war now. I sat up the rest of the night until about 5 o'clock in the morning, thinking of all these things, my life, my past life, death, and what would happen to me if I died. My whole life flashed before my eyes like a movie film, and I remembered the tremendous evil that I had done. The guilt and tension were greatly intense, so I went to my bar for some liquor. I poured a whole cup of strong whiskey, tipped it up, and gulped it down in a single breath. Immediately, my lips, tongue, mouth, and esophagus, and stomach began to burn like fire. The pain in my stomach made it feel like twisting within me. I grabbed my stomach with both hands and held it for a long time until the pain left. I could not drink to escape the guilt of my past, and I wondered what would happen. The pain, fever, tension all combined. I thought I was going to die right then. There was no phone and the neighbors were all asleep at those early hours in the morning and I could not help staying alone. The pains increased in intensity and there was no help in sight and the quiet, lonely darkness was as condemning as my guilt. I took a few drags of a cigarette. The smoke seemed to fill my head until it felt like it would split open. I rolled back and forth on the floor in agony. 5 o'clock brought the dawn and immediately the pains in my stomach and head along with the fever began to cease. The curfew was over at 5 o'clock and I could not stand to be in the room a moment longer so I got out and went for a walk. The cool morning air felt refreshing to my skin. It was quite dark and the streets were empty and quiet. I walked all about the city just strolling around with my shaken thoughts. Then I stopped in front of a small house I looked up at the roof. There on the top sat a small cross. Whatever it was that captured my attention, I did not know, but it also compelled me to go inside the door. It was open a crack, so I went inside. In all my time in Pen on Pen, I had never seen a church here before, and it was a small building nearly hidden in the midst of all these large houses. There was an altar and a chair inside, and for some reason, unknown to me at the time, I felt drawn to the altar where I knelt down. I felt groggy and my head hurt as if someone had hit me. I was a heathen, but here I was kneeling at an altar in a church with tears flooding down my face. I did not know how to pray. I just cried. He would stay in his room until he went to the church before daybreak, and he would cry for two hours before going home. And he didn't know anything about God or Christianity in general, and there was no one in the city to ask. It's here that he tells his family's background. His family was a wealthy family from North Korea before the Korean War, and his father was spoiled and never had to work. So instead, he would party with friends and come home late at night, breaking things in the house. He would regularly beat his wife and vomit all over the house. Jimmy's mother quietly took it all in stride and lovingly cared for her husband as was culturally expected. As the communists began taking over their city, they fled south into what is now South Korea, His father had no skills, so the mother cared for all seven children plus her husband. And while she's in Seoul, she becomes a Christian and took all the kids to church. The oldest two became Christians, but Jimmy himself had no interest and would sneak out as soon as they began to pray, and eventually his mom gave up. But his father would do something even worse. He would hide her Bible and hide her hymnal routinely and just make her feel really terrible. But still she prayed for them, and actually his father became a believer on his deathbed. In his teen years, Jimmy gets involved in martial arts gangs in Seoul while he's still a student, and one day one of Jimmy's gang members hit one of their rivals over the head with a hockey stick, not once, but twice, and then ran off when he collapsed to the ground. Only Jimmy stayed behind to take him to the hospital, where the boy later died. All of his gang except for Jimmy was sentenced to jail. And instead of taking this as a wake-up call, as he should, he gets more involved in martial arts, and he develops quite the reputation in Seoul. eventually joining a gang there. But then he's drafted into the Vietnam War, where he nearly dies five times escaping from the Viet Cong deep in enemy territory. And he said if they caught you, they would cut your body into several pieces and hang it all over the trees. And he tells several stories about that that I'm not going to tell here, but they're very interesting and also harrowing. But throughout his life, you can literally see God giving him so many of these wake-up calls.
0: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify?
2: Ever since Jimmy's mom had become a Christian, she would get up at 4.30 in the morning to pray. And Jimmy says that her calloused knees testified to this fact. And she prayed especially for Jimmy's salvation. And she prayed even harder after he left for the Vietnam War. And harder still when he left for the Cambodian War. The next part of Jimmy's story is really cool. And it takes place when he's going to this church every day and just crying. And his mother is over in Seoul doing something else. And I will pick up uh, in his own words. One day, she decided to have a special prayer for me. She went further south into Korea and on an island close by. There she sat by the seaside and prayed earnestly for me. She told the Lord the burden of her heart and pleaded with Him to answer her prayers. She stayed on the island for two weeks and told God that she would not go home until He answered her. Then she heard a voice from the Lord saying to her that she could go home now. She rose up and went home, and then at the same time found a letter from me in the mail. In this letter, I asked her to send me a Bible, but did not tell her why or what had been happening to me. When she read my letter, she dropped down on her knees in prayer, thanking God for the answer to her long years of praying and pleading for my salvation. It had been 15 days from the time that I wrote that letter to her until I received the Bible. I was so eager for it to come so I could read it and find out what had been happening to me. Every morning when the curfew was lifted at 5 a.m., I would go out to the church and kneel at the altar to cry. For I did not know how to pray, but still God knew that my heart was ready and I was eager to learn about him. People thought that he had a mental breakdown. So he lives in an apartment complex and people know there's something kind of happening. This guy is not the same guy he was a few weeks ago, and he's just kind of acting really, really weird. He also writes to all of his brothers and sisters, telling them what had happened to him and apologizing to them for being just awful. And then lastly, he asked God what God wanted him to do. He knew he was in Cambodia. He knew the situation in Cambodia. And he was saying, hey, God, here I am. You know, use me. Send me. I'm already here. So go ahead and use me. What do you what do you have for me? One thing to keep in mind is that Phnom Penh is completely overrun by orphans. They came to the capital city looking for help because as the Kumai Rouge pushed closer and closer into the capital, they send all of these, you know, orphans coming, you know, ahead of them, basically trying to escape, trying to get away, looking for, um, food and shelter and clothing. And so the place that made the most sense is Phnom Penh. One morning, Jimmy is sitting outside of a cafe enjoying a cup of coffee when a small boy comes up to him and asks if he can live with him. And he looks at this little boy, and he's reminded of his own time living on the streets during the Korean War. For two years, he had been separated from his family, and he lived off garbage, and they filled their bellies with snow and huddled together in the snow in the cold to keep warm. And the children on the outside would often freeze to death by morning. So he thinks of all these things... And, of course, he can't say no, so he takes the boy in. But before long, one boy becomes eight. And they are not good boys. They are naughty boys. And so they run around and do awful things in the apartment complex. They break the elevator multiple times. They they draw on the walls. They're just, just doing just a lot of things that are annoying the neighbors. So the apartment owner says, hey, you can't stay here. I don't care what you pay me. It's not going to happen. You've got to get out. So he finds a house that has no roof, and he repairs it. And so soon this family of nine becomes a family of 50, and these boys needed discipline. So he runs his dormitory military style, complete with a uniform and daily schedule with a Bible study and learning Korean hymns. And he brought in a Cambodian Bible teacher to teach them, and this made the people angry. Cambodians are Buddhist, but Cambodians have a a different view of Buddha, unlike China, which doesn't worship buddha as a god but recognizes him as a teacher Uh, cambodians are more often view buddha as a god and so they thought that something was going to happen this christian coming in here messing things up buddha would get angry so they begin throwing rocks at the school trying to disrupt it trying to say get out of here we don't want you Another thing is that Jimmy was rich because he was being paid by the Cambodian governments and many other governments before this. His job was to come in and train soldiers, so he made quite a bit of money. And he was able to afford nice things for the kids, and the neighbors became jealous. So he invites the neighbor kids over for candy, and 500 kids come. And so he takes them and teaches them hymns too. And then the neighbors had them come over and learn math, and then basic self-care, showers, toothbrushes, etc., And he also teaches them basic English. So before long, he has kind of like a a mini school going on. And these parents begin noticing that their children have started singing again. And because they had stopped during the war, I mean, they have all of this bombing and disruption happening, and that's before the Kumai Rouge get here. So they're already having a lot of issues. But under Jimmy's care, they begin singing again. They begin acting more like children. And they brought home candy and notebooks and pencils, and they were learning and there were problems at the orphanage. It's not like it's perfect. So these children were still stealing things and running away. He tells the story of this one boy who had stolen some things from Jimmy from the orphanage. And he sells them and he uses them to buy a prostitute. And he comes back wasting away from venereal disease. He's able to get the boy treated. But this is the kind of stuff that would happen. They would also have to fight off tropical diseases that would sweep through the orphanage just like that. I mean, they were just – just when one kid gets sick – all the kids get sick. And so he was having to rush them to a doctor far away uh, from the village in which they lived. But God always provided the money and the medicines they needed to treat the children. Little by little, the parents began to ask more about how he was able to do all of these things. How much is the American government paying you, etc., etc.? And he didn't want to tell them it was his own money because he felt that in truth, it was God's money and God's blessing. Whereas before they had been nervous to attend the school and the church for fear of attracting the wrath of Buddha, they looked around them and saw that while other neighboring villages had been completely destroyed, theirs hadn't. So they began to attend to the church meetings, and Jimmy was able to explain the gospel to them. And soon there were 700 children attending the school, so they needed to build a bigger one, and Jimmy also wanted to build a church." But they had no money until one day a $3,000 check showed up. Someone in America recently passed away and had left $3,000 to the orphanage, even though Jimmy had never met them, but just somebody who knew about the work that he was doing. Soon other Christians heard about his orphanage and came to visit, offering monetary gifts and partnering with them in prayer. And for the first year, everything was great. But then his personal money dried up, so they began to pray. They had no rice, suddenly a rice truck shows up. They had no fish, suddenly there's a surplus of fish. God was taking care of them, oranges too, and a missionary doctor gifted a huge amount of supplies to them. The Korean embassy even began sending gifts to the orphanage. Many of them also came by to visit, and one by one they became Christians. But on the other side of this as well, they were dealing with fake orphanages, these people who would come in, pretend to be connected to orphanages in Canada or in uh, Britain, Australia, these sorts of places, and pretend to love the kids and care for them, pretend to be Christians, but in fact they were looking to make a quick buck by selling children, which is, you know, quite evil. So he was dealing with these people as well. On August 15th of 1973, all American bombing in Cambodia ceased. America was conducting bombing raids across the Cambodian border uh, in an effort to root out some of the Viet Cong that were using the border as a means to smuggle weapons. This is controversial on both sides, but that's kind of the basic gist of what was going on. So after this came the evacuation of all American troops. All embassy members of most countries and a lot of foreign nationals leave at this point. Not all of them. There are still many that leave uh, before the fall of on Pin in a few years' time. And there was kind of this uneasiness. What's going to happen now that a lot of foreign troops have pulled out? Uh, but everything was quiet. And before long, everything returned to normal and was operating pretty much the same as it had in pre-war times. And in March of 1975, his mother sends a cable to him that she was dying and wanted to see him. And he hadn't been home in eight years, and everything was going really well at the orphanage, so he decided to go. And when he arrived in Seoul, he found that his mother was well and actually felt bad about messaging him because she had gotten better right after she had sent the note. Jimmy heads back to Pen on Pen on April 15th, 1975, but when they attempted to land... They were kind of turned away. The city was closed. And so they landed in neighbouring Thailand. And they tried to get the officials to help him back into Pen on Pen and to get back to the children, but there were no results. And and two days later and then two days later the city falls to the Kumai Rouge, so it is entirely cut off. And he has no way of getting back to the children at the orphanage. And he says for the first time in his Christian life, he complained to God. He says, Lord, you gave me these children and caused me to love them even more than my own life. You know how that two years ago I stayed with them through the danger, taking the chance of being killed for the love of my children. And now you take them away from me. Why, Lord, why? And he stayed at the YMCA and just cried for his children. Essentially, he just, that's all he did. He just cried for his kids. And there's this uh, OMF missionary, uh, this overseas mission fellowship missionary, formerly China Inland Mission, uh, missionary named Andrew Wei, and he comes to visit Jimmy. Uh, and he had a lot of things to say to him. Uh, but the predominant one was, why are you crying? Why are you being so foolish? God wanted you out of Cambodia to use you elsewhere. He made your mother sick to bring you out of Cambodia. He wanted to use you, but not in Cambodia anymore. Another thing, those are not your children. They belong to God now. You're being selfish, Jimmy. It was God's work and plan the whole time, and you know it. So God will take care of his own children, Jimmy. You will find work somewhere else. After the fall of Phnom Penh, refugees began pouring into Thailand. These are children left without a country. And Cambodia and Thailand and Vietnam, well, Vietnam at this point has its own issues. But none of these countries want these children. They don't want these refugees. And Jimmy starts looking for anyone coming from his orphanage, but he doesn't find them. And to be honest, they're actually, as far as I can tell, he doesn't come in contact with any of the children from his orphanage again or if he does he doesn't include it in his book so he is entirely cut off from these children we have no idea what happens to them but while he's looking for these children he notices there's this 400 mile stretch of refugees that are quickly assembling into different camps based on nationalities and all these different things that the areas of the tav cities they're coming from um, and he begins giving milk to these children and adult refugees And he had many supporters in Singapore, so he goes there to ask them for clothes for the children, and they give three tons of clothing. And then two old friends from Cambodia helped him set up a warehouse in between the refugees and Bangkok, so he wouldn't have to go all the way to Bangkok and then all the way back every time he needed something. And there were so many different refugee camps set along the 400 miles. So it's not just the Cambodians fleeing, it's the Vietnamese fleeing as well. It's Laos is having its own issues. There's a lot of of chaos and a lot of refugees and a lot of just vulnerable people that no one wants. Some of these refugees were Christians, and they helped to distribute the food and lead church services, and then many of the refugees became Christians. And Jimmy said eventually many of those refugees were able to immigrate to France and the U.S. and to Canada. Many of the Cambodian refugees came from Sihanoukville, which is where uh, I currently live. It's a poor city where many of the wealthy military families lived, and many of these children had been sent away from Phnom Penh as the Khmer Rouge got closer, and after the fall of the city and the fall of the country, um, they were now being pushed out of Sihanoukville and were refugees. He received permission from the government to care for them, and he rented a large house for the children and specially supplied their needs as he did his other children in Cambodia. And they all lived together in houses just like a family. He taught them about the Lord and how to pray and how to sing hymns. And within two weeks, all of his children were followers of the Lord, growing in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as he says. He also says the children began going to other refugees, witnessing about the Lord. Jimmy also includes some details about what was happening in Phnom Penh after it had fallen and while it was being evacuated. He says, "...the Kumairu started killing people off by hundreds. No guns were used, only axes and jungle knives. When they first came in, it seemed that things would be well, but now the truth came out. As people were brutally murdered and their bodies were used as advertisements to the rest." Most former government men and higher generals' heads were cut off and placed all around the outside marketplace for everyone to see. The Kumai Rouge came into the city asking for the pastors, upon whom being located were imprisoned. The pastor's family was next to mysteriously disappear, and after that, Christian families all over began to disappear. Buddhists as well as Muslim choms were also persecuted. At the appearance of the communist troops at the gate, dressed in black with AK-47 rifles, all Christians began to pray. No one knew whose name would be called to be taken out for imprisonment and persecution. The name was called slowly. The and family moved toward the gate to be escorted out of sight by the troops, never to return. The people slowly, quietly sang hymns while they watched their lifelong brothers and sisters leave. And this was the way it went until the entire city was empty of Christians. One European woman failed to go to the French embassy for protection. The troops arrested her and tried to force her to carry on being a nurse at their army hospital and to do other things. She refused everything bravely, so the soldiers broke a glass bottle and with it chopped her body to pieces until she bled to death. One foreigner who was a friend of mine, who brought oranges to my orphanage, also remained in Cambodia. He had married a Cambodian lady, and so when the new government came in, he did not want to leave. "'He was out by his house taking pictures when the troops spotted him there. "'What are you doing?' they asked. "'Who are you?' "'I am a foreigner who married a Cambodian lady. "'I love Cambodia and I want to live here,' he answered. "'So they searched his pockets and took his passport. "'The shovels began to fly as they chopped him to pieces in front of his house. "'His wife heard the commotion and came running out to see what was happening.' She saw her husband lying there in a bloody mass of nearly unidentifiable flesh. Her screams and crying angered the troops, so she too died with her husband there in front of her own house. The population of Phnom Pen dwindled from 5 million to approximately 15,000. As more and more people escaped to Thailand, Jimmy found himself more and more busy caring for the physical and spiritual needs of the people. He set up churches and medical dispensaries and living quarters for them. God brought more and more people who wanted to help him. His autobiography ends somewhat abruptly not long after this point. He says that he had been asking the Lord for the opportunity to go to America and learn more about him. He wanted to go to Bible college because he had always felt inadequate to the work that God had called him to. And he was finally given the opportunity to go to a Bible college in the States tuition-free, But he didn't want to go anymore. He wanted to stay and help the refugees, but God had been putting people in place who could take over the ministry when he left. And in the appendix of the book, he states that he spent every summer in North Thailand helping the ministry until it became too hostile for him to go. After the Khmer Rouge were defeated, he worked with Vietnamese refugees in the Philippines before starting an orphan ministry in China. And in 1994, he was able to return to Phnom Penh for the first time in 20 years and once again began ministering to orphans. I looked for any follow-up information that I could find of what became of Jimmy. I was thinking, is he still alive? What is he up to now? And the only thing I could find was a single letter that was translated from Korean that stated that he had developed severe diabetes, which had caused partial paralysis and required amputation of some of his digits. The author of the letter writes that he went to look for Jimmy in the States, only to find out that he had passed away some months earlier in 2009. I want to close out this story with a prayer he wrote down as he was leaving his orphans in Thailand. Oh Lord, thank you for your love and for giving me an opportunity to serve you by taking care of the orphans. You let me know and understand what suffering is. I want to witness not only by mouth, but also by doing— So far, I have obeyed you, and hereafter, help me to obey and follow you only. Lord, not only children in Cambodia and Thailand, but also children around the world are experiencing suffering and starvation. They need your help and your love. Please be with them, I pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Through talking with my students, I discovered that many older Cambodians don't want to talk about the war. Many Cambodians have relatives who were either victims or perpetrators, or victims who were forced to be perpetrators. Very recently, the government has attempted to equip teachers on how to teach the atrocities of the Khmer Rouge, There's a very different mindset when it comes to terrible things that happen in Asia. When you compare it to the Holocaust, where people are educated, Germans are educated, everyone around the world knows about the horrors of the Holocaust, when it comes to genocides in Asia, a lot of people who experienced them do not want to talk about them. They don't want to think about it. They want to bury it and move on. But it's important that it's taught and that it's not forgotten. Please be in prayer for future leaders of Cambodia to be receptive to the gospel. And remember saints like Jimmy Rim, who though they won't be remembered like a Hudson Taylor or an Amy Carmichael, still gave their lives to the work of Christ all over the world. As always, thanks for listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise.